Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris and it's a couple of seconds until it's four o'clock and my name's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six tonight. Today, another inappropriate development for the Great Ocean Road area, which needs to be stopped. I'll be speaking with Russell Nepali from a local environmental group. A new segment for Tuesday Home Time with it's going to be a monthly look at world current affairs with social and political activist Joan Coxedge. Part two of the interview with C. Aguilar and Lo Cardosa looking at politics in Brazil. Dr. Tim Anderson commenting on the West's plans for Venezuela. And finally, the history of Guantanamo Bay concentration camp and activism to close it down. I'll be speaking with Brian Terrell, who's um, part of the group called Witness Against Torture. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that is native to South America and has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grassland for many years. The Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Please visit www.serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Over many years there have been concerns about the overdevelopments along the Great Ocean Road and its scenic restored landscapes. Inappropriate buildings, loss of habitat, coastal erosion, flooding risks, threats of bushfire and indeed the visual impact of buildings. Only weeks ago the state government refused a planning development at Apollo Bay to protect the iconic township from inappropriate development. But there are other planned developments where similar concerns have been expressed if it is allowed to go ahead. And this one concerns the coastal village of Princetown. I spoke yesterday with Russell Depoleur from the Princetown Wetland and Estuary Preservation Group. And I asked Russell to first establish just where on the Great Ocean Road Princetown is situated. It's on the coast. It's about three kilometres east of the Twelve Apostles. There's a river that runs through it called the Jelly Brand and it's an estuary and that runs out into the sea so that the townships are on a hill back about, say, 500 metres from the coast on the edge of the river. Approximately 20 live in the town permanently. Can you describe the environment there, the habitat? Because it's on a hill, it's actually surrounded by a wetland and that wetland... It's quite substantial. It has a, uh, a huge mass of a native weed called Phragmite. You know, that's the predominant. But there's tea tree. It, it's a swamp scrub environment. I know the swamp scrub is endangered, but we have a good portion of it here. Have a, an amount of very rare orchids, if you can find them in amongst the uh, swamp scrub. 
And the bird life is unbelievable. There was a young, a young student who did a, a bird count and it got to like 243, I think, was her final figure. Animal-wise, quite a few snakes, kangaroos, wallabies. How many of those birds would be protected birds? We have the Australian bittern here. I don't know whether you've been reading the papers, but I think the a couple of years ago there was estimated to be about a 1,000 bitterns left in all of Australia, and I think recently that's down to about 800. We've got the bittern here. They usually migrate, but here we believe it's territorial, and we believe they, they breed here as well. How many of those birds are migratory, do you believe? I wouldn't put it at a couple of hundred. I, you know, if you were to say 243 was the total number, I think you'd probably get 200 would be local. Because this is a, a good portion of water, for example, now we're getting inland birds, the royal spoonbills, uh, those kind of birds, pelicans. We're getting all of those birds from inland. They're all coming down to the coast to where there's permanent water. We're expecting, the locals are expecting the snipe to turn up. He usually turns up each summer all the way from Japan, Latham snipe. Now, the birds that come down here, the grey goshawk, the Australian shoveler, the magpie goose, the great egret, the musk duck, the bitten, spotted harrier, the whiskered tern, rufous bristlebird, the little egret, Latham snipe, white-bellied sea eagle, the Lewin's rail, the Royal Spoonbill, the Glossy Ibis. There's also the Australian grayling that uh, is a very, very rare and, hi and highly protected. He lives in the river and he'll be impacted by uh, a brand new uh, two-lane bridge. Spoonbills, there's just an enormous amount of birds. It sounds to me, Russell, that it's a pretty precious place and well looked after. Is there a preservation society amongst the people there? There's a small one, Jan. This was one of the problems was where we all got caught with our pants down because, you know, if you read the information on Princeton from the council, the council says, you know, it's a sensitive wetland and it's not to be developed and you, you've got to, you know, learn to appreciate the tranquility and the um, serenity and just nature in, in itself. All of a sudden, they approve a resort in the middle of it. When was this? Two years ago, December 2016. And how were you informed this was happening? We were sent a notice from the council. We were given three weeks to uh, learn about it, to actually digest this, to find out what was going on, to make comment, and then it was voted on at council. All I can say about that process, Jan, is that it was legitimate, but it was the absolute bare minimum of time. What did you learn about this proposal? What it meant? How big it is? It's got a 300-seat restaurant, group accommodation. It's got pleasure boats, boardwalk constructions going through the wetland. It required major bridge and road upgrades. So it had accommodation for nearly 
200 to 300 people, as well as a 300-seat restaurant. So this virtually came out of the blue? Yes. In the previous 12 months, the council went to the public and asked for areas of development. There was quite a few people put in saying, look, you know, this area might be good for development, this area. They chose five areas of de- for development. This was not one of those areas. The community thought that this issue was fairly safe because, you know, here you have a designated area for development. You know, for example, there was a uh, designated area a kilometre and a half inland from the Twelve Apostles. There's a development going on there. But that was the whole idea of this was, was to, to decide on areas and to stay with them. This area here was not one of those. And then all of a sudden, the council's given approval for no other reason than they're desperate for development. That sounds a pretty big development to me. It is so big, Jan, that the developer could not get EPA approval for his septic system. He's got 100 acres, approximately 43 hectares. 34 of those 43 hectares is a wetland of significance. It's actually uh, recognised by the um, CCMA as wetland number 50211, and they actually record it as a breeding ground for the bittern. He's going to build this resort right around this wetland. He's building it on sand. I've got a photograph of the whole site underwater. This is water from inland. The Jolly Brand begins in the, in the Otways. So it's quite a massive river, and it uh, collects a lot of water. As you know, the Otways get a fairly high annual rainfall. I think it's up around 70 or 80 inches, and there would be places like Weepnarina, which would be above that. Now, its catchment is all the way down. This is water just coming down from, rain, from a winter rain, and this, this photograph is uh, five years ago. That, a flood of that size, we haven't had one since then, but we have uh, floods from both ends. In the summertime, the river mouth bars, water level just rises. So it, it will rise sufficiently to actually cover the Great Ocean Road, which is, you know, another kilometre away. And that would inundate at least the wetland of his property. His 34 acres of wetland would be underwater in the summertime. And then you get, you get the rain in the wintertime. What correspondence or conversations have you had with the local shire to voice your opinion apart from those three weeks? Were there any of the local shire members actually supporting you or was it a unanimous decision by the councillors to go ahead with this? In the end, it went down 3-4. Three, 3 against and the mayor, who has two votes, had the deciding vote and she voted for it. It was a close call. Jan, the two local councillors who know the area incredibly well, they just said, this is crazy. But, you know, sometimes in local government, 
the tourist dollar or, or the desire for the tourist dollar overrides common sense. There's a real problem when you start to lose, because that's the consequence of this, is that well, we will lose a pristine environment that's, you know, we'll never get back. And that's the problem because somebody that doesn't even come from this ward has, has made a decision that the tourist dollar is better than our environment. Have you been to VCAT? Yes. Look, we went to VCAT. We could only go on planning grounds. We weren't able to go through the entire process for simply that, for lack of funds. So we really had to compromise. We had one opportunity to tighten up all the, all the regulations and the permits, and we took that opportunity. But we were kind of facing 50 lawyers at 50 paces, and we only had one. We had limited funds. We didn't lose, but we didn't, weren't able to change it. At all? Well, we changed the permit. We changed the conditions in the permit, but we didn't change the decision. Where did you go after VCAT? And I'd just like to say that I've had this before, people talking about VCAT. There's no, you can't call it democracy because the local people who are complaining against something, as you said, they're up against the big companies who have got the lawyers to represent them. Yeah. We just didn't know. <laughs> we... We had no idea what was involved. We thought we were all doing the right thing. It was just proving, you know, we, we had an expensive lawyer. We raised funds. We were putting all of our activities and energy into raising funds instead of, you know, in the, into the actual fight. We were just kind of outgunned. We, just, we took an opportunity to kind of, instead of ending up in a huge debt, we just took an opportunity to try and do what we could do. I mean, that sounds a little bit kind of, not a sellout, but in hindsight, we could have approached it a whole lot differently. But we just, you know, this, these things aren't designed for communities. VCAT is not designed for a community to be given a fair go. Did you go further than the local show then and contact the state government? Yes, we have. We've uh, been sending letters to um, Lily D'Ambrosia as Minister for the Environment. That hasn't proved to be successful yet. She's passed us on to uh, the Minister for Planning, Richard Wynne, who um, we've met with a couple of his representatives. And the short the tall of that was that because the council has made it, because there is a permit in place, there's very little he can do. We then have contacted Federal Minister for the, for the Environment, Melissa Price. We've heard back from her office because we wrote to her about our concern for the EPBC listed flora and fauna in the wetland. They've had a look at that and we've got the positive news is that the compliance section of her office has written to the developer to inform him 
of his obligations. Which are? Well, his obligations are to contact the minister, to contact the department if he is going to have an act, is going to perform an action which will affect EPBC listed flora and fauna. So, for example, if he wants to widen the road and there's a, a rare orchid where he wants to widen the road, which is the case, he has, actually has to contact the minister and they have to make a decision as to whether that is occurring. If a massive resort is going to have some effect on the bittern, which is an incredibly shy and timid bird, through noise, light, sound, footpaths through a wetland, pedestrians on the footpath, then that's an action which will affect the breeding ground and the territory of the bin. Basically, the onus is on the developer to contact the department of, you know, for the department, and he, which he hadn't done. He's refused to do that. So the first step has been taken where the compliance part of the department has uh, sent him a letter uh, reminding him of his obligations. What do you hope the next step will be? This was one of the steps that we wanted. The community doesn't want this development at all. If we can't stop it, we at the very least want to try and minimise the impact on the animals and the birds that live in that environment. You know, what will happen is that the, the bitten, uh, whose territory next to where the resort is going, he will move. He will move downstream and he will more than likely dislodge perhaps another bitten. Or he might be dislodged, he might be just end up wherever. And I mean, that's, that's why species are endangered, because of, uh, you know, loss of habitat. And loss of habitat comes, you know, not, not only from destroying the environment, but from making it impalatable for the, for the animal to live there. If he's timid, he doesn't want people walking past him. He doesn't want air conditioning noises. He doesn't want lights going, you know, 24-7, that kind of thing. And, of course, when they keep on bringing more of these developments in, it just destroys the culture, it destroys the environment, and that's what people are coming for. So they come in their hundreds or thousands to see the, the unique environment, and by the time they're all there for a while, there's no environment left. <laughs> um, I think... You know, there's a couple of things I could say. I agree wholeheartedly, Jan. The big news is, you know, about Amani, the mining thing, you know, and how massive that is. But when you take all of these little developments going on and you add them together, their impact is the same. It's just here's one here and here's one there. There'll be another one just down the road. All add up to a massive impact. There's a problem at local government. For local government to put a tourist dollar before the environment and the community, and that's the other important thing about this area, is this is the community's area. They come here, they swim in the river. You can't swim in the sea, it's too dangerous. But they swim in the river, they camp down here. We had this thing called the, the Great Ocean master plan the great ocean road master plan and it actually said that development should be exceedingly low key 
in this area. But that's our problem at local government is because, oh, I don't like to say, you know, to be critical of them, but it's a dinosaur process of thinking. Such short term. They don't get the long term. If they leave that there, we'll never get it back if it goes. And, of course, it's exhausting for local communities to keep on fighting these developments. And I suppose some of the developers are sort of bank on that, that the people will give up. Jan, I'm 65, and we've been fighting this for two years, and I'm sick of it, but I'm not going to stop, and I've got better things to do. I just don't want this to happen. And it should never have happened. I mean... There were 159 objections. Normal circumstance, this would have been simply referred straight to the minister. Our dinosaur council wouldn't have had to, wouldn't have made that decision. It would have gone to the minister. The minister could have made the decision. He could have recognised the importance of this area and simply said, no, it's not on, guys. There's designated areas down here for development. Put your resort there. Where to from here? We'll keep plugging away. We can't stop. If he breaks ground, then, you know, it may be over. But he hasn't broken ground yet. We're just hoping that Federal Minister for the Environment, Melissa Price, may take notice of this. You know, we've just finished a letter to the um, new Minister for Endangered Species. You know, there's still a little bit of light at the tunnel jam but it's it's um it's not easy keeping your energy up and running you know there's a group of us we've been we've been able to to you know get quite a few letters we've got a couple of doctorates in the environment down here and they've sent stuff up deacon uni at uh, warnable's very handy we're, we're sort of talking to them a fair bit it's a small group the involvements are different is there any final word you'd like to say if you were to have a look at the photograph of this whole area under flood, you would think this is a joke. And in some ways, it's a terrible joke. It's terrible because it's not a joke. I would like to say that we're dealing with local government that hasn't been transparent. We are dealing with ratepayers' money being used by the council to help this developer. This developer got, he got a grant from the federal government and state government, the TDDI grant, which is an infrastructure grant. One of the conditions of, of obtaining this grant is that you're meant to have, you're meant to be spade ready. And that means you're meant to have a permit. He actually stated this on his application for a permit. Just a heap of irregularities in the whole, in the whole blocks and dice because he couldn't get an EPA permit for his septic his proposal is to tanker the waste out he's going to tanker raw sewerage in trucks up the Great Ocean Road to a treatment facility this would mean possibly eight or nine trucks of raw septic daily, each one carrying 30,000 litres. When you've got to drive there, pick up and go back, say there's eight trucks, that's 16 trucks on the road. And the council 
are going to consider this. And that's another hurdle that we've got to get over. Sounds horrendous, doesn't it? That's Russell Deppley speaking about this proposed development at Princetown. If you'd like to have a look at their Facebook page, Princetown, I'm sure you'll find it from just that one word and maybe there's something that you can do to assist. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that is native to South America and has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. The Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Please visit www.serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Let's hear now from Joan Coxidge, political activist, former politician, and this will be her monthly Look at world politics. A happy new year and the best of British luck for those afflicted with Brexit. One hell of a mess, whichever way it goes. The imperial heartlands in chaos, along with the other two major capitals, Washington and Paris, tottering, under siege by their own people. Theresa May, a dead woman walking. No faction can command a majority. An election cannot be held because the most likely result is a victory for staunch anti-imperialist Jeremy Corbyn, who the deep state would like to see under house arrest or worse. A no-deal Brexit would see the south of England grind to a halt as trucks heading to the continent would turn Kent into a giant car park. While at the top of the empire, the United States Defence Secretary Mad Dog Mattis has resigned along with the other subalterns furious at the President's decision to withdraw from Syria. The real mad dog, John Bolton, openly defies Trump, while the Democrat majority in the House is gearing up to impeach the President, ignoring the system that put him there and the eight years of Obama's presidency that created him. Peak at his likely successor, Vice President Mike Pence, is a reminder of a photo of President Nixon with Vice President Spiro Agnew standing behind him with a speech bubble saying, nobody is going to shoot me with this guy next in line. Trump is a caricature, an embarrassment, the epitome of America without a mask, and Pence is even worse. The US empire in decline? Not quite yet. Unfortunately for the world, the US military has never been more threatening, with a new Cold War spelling immense danger for everyone. Norman Mailer warned us a decade or so ago that American power had entered a pre-fascist era. Others reckon we're already in it. Obama came and Obama went and contrary to his carefully crafted media image was one of the most violent of US presidents. He launched or sustained seven wars and left office with none resolved. His last year as president in 2016 According to the Council on Foreign Relations, he dropped 26,171 bombs, three bombs every hour, 24 hours a day, mainly on civilians. A bombing technique he made his own was assassination by drone. Every Tuesday, he selected the names of those who would die in a program of extrajudicial murder. All males of military age in Yemen and the frontiers of Pakistan fair game. With France and Britain and egged on by his Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, 
Obama destroyed Libya as a modern state that led directly to the growth of ISIS and the stampede of immigration from Africa to Europe. He overthrew the democratically elected president of Ukraine and installed an openly fascist-backed regime as a deliberate provocation to Russia. In France, we might see a rerun of the storming of the Bastille. Last weekend, Macron's spokesman had to be smuggled out the back door after a truck hijacked by protesters smashed through the door of his government building, rocking the very foundations of the French Republic. For more than eight weeks, hundreds and thousands of French people of all political persuasions have been demanding the president should resign and that his handing out euros in concessions failed to appease. The old order is dying and the new one hasn't been born yet, but if we're not careful, we could soon be alive in the time of monsters. For the rest of us, the capitalist system continues on its unmerry, destructive, divisive path, which is what the unrest is all about. The richest 26 people now own the same amount of wealth as the poorest half of the world, says Oxfam. Last year, the assets of those at the top of the heap increased by 900 billion American dollars, or by a whopping 2.5 billion a day, whereas the poorest half went downhill by 11%. To put things into perspective, fat cat bosses earn more in three days than the average worker's annual salary. And these super-rich bastards are paying less and less tax, in most cases none at all. Since the 2008 so-called economic crisis, the number of billionaires has doubled. The world's richest man, Amazon chief Jeff Bezos, has an estimated fortune of $112 billion and reckons the best way to spend his ill-gotten gains is on space travel. Bugger up the Earth and look for another planet to bugger up. As a further cheer-up, not exactly news, but still worth noting, that the US has 95% of the world's total number of military bases located in 164 countries. Putting a precise figure on it is impossible because most of them are secret. The Pentagon doesn't want to talk about them, said the Pentagon. Seventeen years after 9-11 provided the excuse for George W.'s global war and terror has seen Americans actively engaged in 80 nations on six continents spreading to more than 40% of the world's nations. The political economy of war is the political economy of the U.S., it denies some 80 million of its citizens proper health care while devoting almost 60% of its federal discretionary budget to war preparations. Wars without end. Amen. Latin America is also in a hell of a mess. Most of the continent is effectively back in Washington's grip, especially Brazil, with Bolivia, Nicaragua and, of course, Venezuela fighting for their lives. The US, Canada and France, along with seven South American countries, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Peru, Paraguay, Argentina and Costa Rica, have formally recognised Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guado, snubbing the elected socialist government of Nicolas Maduro. Guado, pardon the pronunciation, has sworn himself in as interim president, urging the Venezuelan military to support him. Formerly enlightened Ecuador is another dismal example. The obsequious government of Lenin Marino has invited the US military back and threatened to abandon Julian Assange. 
And a few days ago, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced there would be a careful review of the 1996 anti-Cuban Helms-Burton Act in order, quote, to expedite a transition to democracy in Cuba, and we all know what that means. If the review goes ahead, it would give power for U.S. courts to compensate former owners of properties lost during nationalisation by the Cuban government and could mean that U.S. courts demand the houses Cubans live in, the places where they work, the schools they go to and the clinics where they get medical attention. And here at home, with our heads well and truly in the sand about climate change and just about everything else of importance, a moronic Prime Minister is fixated on maintaining the date of Australia Day when he can barely pronounce where we live. But I'll let Lernig have the last word. The Prime Minister will tell yous about your Australian values as soon as he gets the details in tweets and texts and emails straight for powers that be in Washington, D.C. Good afternoon and keep well and keep safe. And thanks to political activist Joan Cox and we'll be hearing Joan on the program on the last week of each month. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. On the program last week, we heard C. Aguilar and Loan Cardoso from Brazil, now living in Melbourne, talking about the rise of reaction in Brazil and the elevation of J. Bolsonaro to the presidency. Today, the second part of their interview. What do you see as the, over those years, and particularly now as the influence of the churches, maybe in the past and the Pentecostal churches now? I've worked a neighborhood for some years and I've seen that. I know that culture. These neo-Pentecostal, they really set up the cultural agenda for most of the, these people that, that are not within the middle class bubble. It's, it's interesting because it's not only a religious thing, it's cultural because even someone Catholic, when they're from the folk people, when they're not in the middle-class bubble, they talk like evangelical, they, the way they talk. So it's really a culture. And I, and I see that as really they're taking a, a place there of communicating with these people. That There's no one from the left. There's no one really helping to build up understanding from, in, in, in that they're always very in the bubble. Like It's like a, a disregard for... For that sector of the population and and the the work of the churches is I really don't think the way to deal with it. I don't see all the uh, necessarily all the pastors, all the new Pentecostals, right wing or all of them are this reactionary. It's not at all a hundred percent of them, but 
yeah, many of them, especially those that go to Congress, like uh, Marco Feliciano, they're like really bad people taking advantage of of the poor people. There is a lot of that, but it's not just that. And I and I think it's a little bit. If you just set up that barrier, like you're never gonna be able to to see what's going on. If you just think that they're all these crazy evangelical who believe all sorts of lunacies, then you're you're blocking the communication. I I don't think that is the way to go, especially because I've been. I've worked with them when I worked at a bank. Like I worked very much within those communities. I saw all that, and you know, you know, people are just people, and most of them are good people. Some of the pastors, yes, they're not good people. They fool a lot of them, but it's not something to have contempt about. Is it's not something to just disregard. See. The indigenous peoples of mm. Brazil, you identify yeah. as an indigenous person. How have yeah. they got on the last few years and what are your concerns now? Yeah, my grandparents, the indigenous, like um, my great-grandparents, they were really, they even didn't spoke our language, they were spoken their native language. So my background is indigenous, yeah. I grew up like uh, not seen myself like an, uh, an indigenous because of the culture in Brazil it's like this. You have a kind of fight between them, you know, like the white people, they hate the indigenous people because they took their land and uh, only after when I was growing up and you know, an adult person that I, I, I could comprehend my background, and then I I traveled to my village as one, as an adult, and then I could see the reality, and then I could understand my background, and then I could identify myself as as indigenous, and uh, I start pay attention more in their situation. And what is that situation? Situation today is like I've even was talking to Debbie yesterday about this situation. This month is happening in Brazil one uh, campaign called Janeiro Vermelho in in English it's called like uh, Red January. It's like a campaign to make people be aware of the indigenous situation today in Brazil because after Bolsonaro he always left very clear that he doesn't like indigenous people like he doesn't see them as minority. He only see them as everybody else. Like you are Brazilian or you're not Brazilian. There is no this division. So he always left very, very clear the, uh, the message. He always left it was like this: If I be the president in my during my governor, I'm not gonna give any land to indigenous people because for me they're like Brazilians like us. So they're not animals trapped in a zoo. So they have to pay their taxes. They they want a cell phone, want TV like us. So it's not like fair for him and his point of view. They still living in the middle of the jungle. So this is his view. And uh, his followers, they think like him, especially because he's with uh, agriculture people and uh, they really hate these indigenous uh, because of the lands. What yeah. is the situation of land rights? The land rights is like this. Today in Brazil, 
Indigenous people, they have uh, 13% of the lands of Brazil. The whole Brazil, 13% is with the indigenous people. And uh, they are also 1 million people living there in these lands. It's something very clear for us to understand why they need these lands, because they live very different than us. They don't live in one house with everything that they go to the supermarket. They have to plant their food, and uh, they need uh, one area for this, and uh, the way they use to do that, it's a way that they need more land, for example. Their main thing they, they plant, they cultivate, it's cassava. And uh, they need one uh, piece of land to plant this, and after two years, this land is not they cannot plant on this anymore. And so they let the the land rest in, and then they go to another. So they need a, more land than us. And, but it's it's complicated for them to understand this, and they think they have a lot. Though, I mean, the population, the, the white people, they think they have a lot, and they don't need more in the agriculture. They want this. And it's very important to leave that land Yeah. Fellow. Give it a rest. Yeah, and this is the way they, they maintain everything, like the way it has to be preserved. Because they preserve, they, they know if they destroy this, they're not going to have in the field. So they really preserve this. Uh, it's uh, different uh, the way the well, white people sustainable. relate. Yeah, sustainable. Totally sustainable. The lens, they've been like this. He promised if he would be the president, he would not give more lens to them. And uh, now it's been... Like after he won, lots of massacres been starting with them because they feel like now they have the aval to do that, you know, like they have the government support. Who are the ones making this? The loggers, because for all the trees they have there, the miners and the, the big farm owners. They go and they try to to take these lands from the indigenous people, and now more than than ever, they're they're gonna have lots of conflicts because even inside of the indigenous population, they they have conflicts with each other because some tribes they accept bribes, so they give space to them. Lately, now we having some conflicts. That's the reason they start this campaign, uh, January Red. Hashtag January Red to make people more aware and try to bring more people to their side. I don't know if you have heard about the FUNAI. FUNAI is the the organization that protects indigenous people in Brazil. It's a national foundation, indigenous. This organization is the one that's supposed to be protecting them, and that's the the foundation that make the mark lands for them. But now in Bolsonaro's government, the one of the first things he has made was uh, he kind of uh, he broke up this FUNAI. Now not only FUNAI has all, all the responsibility uh, making the marked lands anymore. Now uh, he transferred this to the Minister of Agriculture. So it's like totally controversial because Fox taking care of the eggs. Yeah, it's basically like this. And now the agriculture minister, he, he's the one who's going to demarc lands. That, that's clear that that is not going to, they're not going to demarc lands anymore because if it's the, the agriculture is the one who's going to make that and Bolsonaro is the one who has to approve 
at the end, he's the one signed at the end to give this lands to the indigenous people. So clear that's not going to happen anymore. There are people worldwide concerned about the impact of what's happening on the Amazon, the Amazon basin. Yeah, because most of this. Uh, indigenous lands, they're inside of the Amazon. Most of the tribes, they are there. And uh, the Amazon, it's really rich in some, for miners, miners, uh, it's really rich on this, and uh, these uh, lands to be explored, they're exactly inside of the reserves, the indigenous reserves. It is a big concern though, isn't it? Because people say, scientists say there's there's so much in there, in the Amazon that People don't even know what's there. Yeah, they even don't know. And the the, the privileged government, they demarcate these these lands to indigenous people because they know that they're gonna protect this. So some of them they're they're national parks. So the government take care of this, and us, uh, most of them they're with indigenous people. But miners and the the ones they they build dams. So the big dams they use. These areas, for example, one the the most biggest one that was uh, uh, Montebello, that was inside of some indigenous land, and uh, there is something interesting about this now. The Funai uh, Bolsonaro has made like uh, he has indicated another president for Funai, and this president is one uh, general. He's from the army. This new president, he's working before for one. Uh, big mine, that, that this mine is interested in indigenous land. So he left this work to work as president as Funai, so probably he's going to work for his interests, you know. Focus on human rights yeah. in Brazil. We're talking about the minorities. You've talked about the indigenous people, you've yeah. got women, you've got LGBTQ people. What's the future for the minorities, apart, you've already explained yeah. that the indigenous rights are under threat. But what about the other in minorities? Or women aren't even a minority, but they're yeah, treated yeah. badly. Can I just add something to what I was saying about the new Pentecostal churches? The main reason of this of this uh, great increase in and in this uh, power of the new Pentecostal churches and how a, a lot of people became affiliated to them. Is because life is tough. So since there is so much oppression, this system is so bad, people need to embrace an afterlife. They need to have a supernatural thing to believe in. I think this is the basic reason why all this. Again, we come back to the subject of the bubble because for those within the middle class bubble, it's hard for them to comprehend how tough life is and why all these people need to believe in those things to cope, to to just keep going and live their lives. But yeah, that was all I wanted to ask. Now about the minorities. Yeah, I I really think it's just an intensification of everything that's going on. Now it's an opportunity for people to be more aware, to fight more against these oppressions of of the minorities. Now everything is like laid out. It's less hidden. Bolsonaro's picture over there it says everything like he's a really uh, bad guy Uh, he he spoke against many if not all minorities so now things are eventually more clear in that sense 
So everything that that they suffered, uh, I think, is about to intensify. The struggle will, will get bigger. What yeah. about neighbouring Venezuela? Is a big concern from the left of what might happen with Brazil and Venezuela with the United States? Yeah. So some part of the left, they very much buy the propaganda of imperialism. They really don't understand the the basic stance of a Latin American country uh, regarding other Latin American countries. The the very basic feature that they're the same people and they need to protect each other from imperialism, they don't don't get this. How do they call themselves the left then? Well, they do, but like, I don't want to say that they're the majority. Some of them, like, they simply uh, buy all everything against uh, uh, Venezuela that it's portrayed in, in the media and, and, they, and they think that it's somehow to be a fanatical to stand with Venezuela but it's not the same thing to stand with something and, and not being able to criticize that same thing like you can if, if there's a struggle going on like there is one side against the other and if you ever understand anything about the history of Latin America, you don't blink before you stand with Venezuela because oil, like natural resource, United States. So I don't have to say anything else. Like that's it. Like it's really simple, a simple matter here. But yeah, uh, it's it's like I said. I think it's the process of ideological massification, homogenization after the coup d'etat of the military regime was really intense and people are starting to grasp it right now with the election of Bolsonaro, what actually happened in the society. Because what happened ideologically was very important. You can see that the state of, of the left, some people not understanding what goes on when Venezuela is facing all these issues. But like, let me now go back to... Specifically, you said about now Bolsonaro being in power. And yes, some people think that there might be a case for an invasion. And I really don't think that by the way that I, I read, the way I, I read politics and I read what's going on, I don't think it's still a case for an invasion that would be too costly. Yes, they will keep trying to overthrow Maduro just as they always did and putting pressure. Uh, luckily, we have the Mexico president standing on our side, and we'll see. Bolsonaro has waved to Trump, like, if you want a one military base here, that's okay. That's absurd what Yeah, but, like, uh, so, so <laughs> here again, we got to really just read realistically. It's not th that uh, it's 100% of the military that it's... Yeah with the USA. Of course, a lot of them are. Of course, Moron, which is the vice president, he is very much like uh, committed with USA. Bolsonaro already gave his salute to the American flag. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. But it's, it's not like so simple. Like to make something like this, it's not that simple. I, I really don't think right now there will be like a Venezuelan invasion, a war against Venezuela. I don't think that is in the table exactly now. They can do it economically. Why should they do it by invasion? Yeah. They can uh, destroy the country. we got to read the uh, uh, reality as it is. Like I, I think right now the economic pressures are... So this is why I think it's important. Uh, Obrador in Mexico, he's sending with us, and that's where we should look to. We, we, we should... 
see the ones who are on our side. All right, well, looking to the future, what are people going to do? What is there for the people to do in a situation that they're finding themselves in now? Yeah, that's a big question, Mark. I really find it hard to foresee. If you were there. Because I I really cannot imagine Brazil in Mm. four years from now. Like, I feel like it might happen that Bolsonaro will not finish his mandate because the, the crisis, the economic crisis, is heavy. There is no end in sight. Their economy, why are they in such a crisis? So from since the military regime, all the decisions that were made, and especially after the redemocratization, the economy is totally susceptible to external influences. That There is a huge vulnerability in the economy. And uh, since the Plano Real, which is the new paradigm built in the 90s, that's when they ended inflation, but they triggered some other things like the public debt exploded. The main in- investments shifted from productive to non-productive, like uh, playing with the treasury bonds. And uh, since then, the, the industry has shrank. And this has a lot to do with the economic situation of right now. Country became basically agricultural. Ideologically, you can see that clearly. Global, the main media outlet there, they say agro is pop, agro mm. is everything. Like They, they want to put in there in people's head. When since Adam Smith, we know that a, a country that has only agriculture really doesn't have a lot of power to negotiate in, in the global stage. So, But they still, the agriculture, they still think that that's not enough because... Uh, they only use uh, like uh, 7.6% of the lands in Brazil to grow in grains. Yeah, and uh, one of the reasons they really fighting against indigenous people because they have, as I told you, 13%. They think like uh, why Brazil is an example for the world about uh, preserves. Reservations, uh, because we can, we do like uh, 30% of our territory is only for protection, and uh, lately uh, the agriculture, the United States, they made one campaign like this. There was like a really, the slogan there was like this, farm here, forest there. Like uh, here in our country, we produce, we become rich, but you have to preserve your forest. So this is for agriculture, people that are in Brazil, especially the, the racist one is like a uh, Confrontation. Why? Why do I have you're not you're poor country and you have to protect our lands while you produce and you become more rich on our back? So I think particularly the crisis is so acute in Brazil because this is a general trend the in industry leaving Latin America, but among the Latin American countries, Brazil was the one who took this further the industrialization in the 60s and the 70s. So now that this is going away, it's a big hit for Brazil. It's bigger than for other countries that didn't rely, didn't have such of an industry at all. But Brazil, it's like it's a it's an important change. In São Paulo, you had an industrial hub. That's where PT was born, and that is all like changing. Uh, so y- you have a deep economic distress there. What does this scenario mean for the poorer people of Brazil? So now with this trend of uberizing the economy, 
we got to understand that in Brazil, the minimum wage now is $1.26 per hour, Australian dollars. So when you try to cut that, when you try to extract more value of this population, you might hit a wall. There might not be anything to take. So I think that's kind of what is happening in Brazil right now. Like this whole global trend of uberizing the economy, making the work of the people more like uh, weakly, like uh, more unstable. So yeah. this is hitting Brazil, but in Brazil there is not much to take. There's not And uh, Bolsonaro, he has promised this. He, he told this, he was really clear during his campaign that uh, I'm going to bring jobs for you, but then you have to give up of your rights. So m more jobs, less rights. He was really clear with this. So people, they vote, voted him aware that there is be like this, you know, they're going to be like this, but they changed their rights. Like they basically swap their rights with not having PT in the power anymore. Yeah, I see the future, like this uh, whole facade of uh, jobs and whatever hope there is in the population in Bolsonaro's voters is not going to take long to disappear. Where is the left? The left needs not to fall in the trap of having this dream and longing for the great period of PT in the 2000s and when Lula was president and promise that back because like the, the world scenario is different now that cannot first of all it was not that great as they tried to portray and it, it cannot come back because that was like a, a specific scenario in the global economy but position of the left should be to try to be useful to the people because there will be some class struggle genuine and intense in the next years you know there were strikes And I can see clearly that they're intensifying. Last year, the trucks drivers stopped the whole country. It was really intense. The supermarkets couldn't load their shelves. And you had the school occupations. You had in 2017, one day of a national strike. You can see a trend of increase, and I think it will continue this trend. And it will be more struggle, more strikes. So the left should try to be useful that and in being useful i think that educating and helping to comprehend in a systematic basis really is the way to go so i i think what rose luxembourg thought about it i basically agree the place of the party should be somewhat similar of a, a school you need to you can be useful if you if you really can uh, teach the the working class from the perspective of the working class because There's a lot of places where they can get information, but the perspective is always of who is telling the story, always the capitalist, everywhere you look. So, yeah, I think that the left, the left has this job right now in Brazil. And Bolsonaro, he's uh, aware, he's really aware of this, that the left can really increase. <laughs> he's, our, he's kind of... Starting with the teachers, so the first thing is like if you teach something about uh, Marxism or revolution or all this bullshit, you're gonna lose your job and you're gonna go to the jail. He's already been oppressor uh, because of this. In his mind, it's like this: uh, the Marxist wave is like choose Brazil as one of uh, big field, 
to build revolution, you know, and he's gonna cut this, he's gonna change all the all the books from school because he wants to cut this in his rule. This is his intention in his uh, sick mind. Ironically, there is an, an increase in the interest for socialism right now because Bolsonaro talks so much about socialism. Yeah. People are finally yeah, trying to <laughs> comprehend what is this that, he, that he's talking about because yeah. the Workers' Party never meant that. Even like in the recent yeah, October, yeah, in October 2018, right now, uh, last campaign, Socialism was not mentioned. Neither socialism nor capitalism nor, you know... It's really interesting the way they do because I don't know if you have heard about oh, one of one. the rightist candidates. He was the one bringing TV in front of everybody, one of the most big peg of leftists that create one, one unity so, with everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, <laughs> he yeah, came up in one of those debates... Yeah. with the uh, union of the socialist Latin American republics. Like but a conspiracy he this, yeah. that he said that was going on. But he told this is in a really bad way. Like, he, he, I he, know you are creating the Sao. The Sao is uh, yeah. the uh, union he, of all the countries. Uh, he was like saying this as a bad thing, but uh, this turnaround, like uh, a very good thing because everybody starts start talking about this. No, what, sounds like what a good idea. About? Yeah, that's a good idea. So that's a, an amazing idea. So he made a, a very good service to the left <laughs> party. It, it's, it's, it's tragic and I, it's comic tragic comic because tragic. The, the, <laughs> there's nobody from the left that will ever bring up any discussion uh, on this, these matters. So you got to have a, a crazy guy like that to bring up this. A good note to finish on? I would like to finish with slogan sentence communism is good there you go that's Lo Cardoso from Brazil and his partner Ciegua speaking about the past the present and the future for Brazil they're now living here in Australia coming up to two minutes past five o'clock and this is 3CR Community Radio. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Last Thursday, Dr Tim Anderson, under suspension from his position as Senior Lecturer at the University of Sydney, attended a meeting. I asked him who was there and what his feelings were about the proceedings of that meeting. My feelings about the meeting were that this is a group that's put together by management for management, so I'm, I don't really have any confidence. Although, although they, they heard me, I knew that they were going to listen to me. 
that the chair is a former Industrial Relations Commissioner and has a degree of independence that the union agrees with. I still feel like it's a management group, you know, so I, I don't really have great confidence in, in them. But let's, let's see. It's, I really don't know what's going to come out of this process yet. But what is that next step in that process? Are they going to report to management within two weeks? I'll get a copy of the report, so the report will be public effectively. But then it's up back to management to decide what to do, and management decided what to do late last year when they suspended me. So, And plus, I'm fairly sure that management has a plan B too. That is to say, if the report goes against them in some way, if the report says there wasn't serious conduct, for example, then I think they may have a plan B because I think they... Uh, would like to get rid of me, but, but let's see. Let's see what happens. It's, it's really uh, up in the air as far as I'm concerned. Well, something else that's certainly up in the air at the moment is the situation in Venezuela. Well, not really up in the air because certain people have got sort of their sights on Venezuela in a very serious way now. Yes, although in a sense some of the people in the US are now backing away from the suggestion that they're going to get militarily involved, you know, having declared some nobody the president of Venezuela. It's really just like some they don't recognise the government. And the bigger problem really is the the codependence that both countries have in terms of oil because um US is Venezuela's biggest customer. Can you think of a situation where an outside governments have installed, so to speak, the leader or one of the leaders of the opposition as the president? With Syria, they, they did, they created this group, uh, you know, a, what do you call it, uh, uh, one of those names, the, you know, double-speak names, the Friends of Syria. With Hillary Clinton, they installed some group, exile group, and said this was the legitimate government of, the, of Syria, you know, from the outside. They, pretend, they pretended that for a couple of years. So they've tried it before, but it's, it's a, it is a slightly novel tactic, more or less, you know, say Cuba, for example, which they've had under blockade for 60 years now. Well, Trump does recognise the government now after Obama's change, but basically they didn't install a government in exile. They did have, with Cuba, they did have a, a type of a proconsul in exile. It was interesting, a transition coordinator based in Washington. So they've had, the US has had different sorts of ways of trying to say, we don't recognise this government, here's someone else. I remember with, um, with the Bush regime, George W. Bush in the US, if you remember him, yeah, they installed someone called a transition coordinator and uh, the Cubans laughed at it and called him a proconsul, which was like the emissary from the Roman Empire that went out to the regions, you know, and the proconsul was effectively the governor of the regions and so on. So they do it in different ways, but it's the, the same thing, isn't it? This talk all the time about the electoral process is crooked. There's been so many elections in Venezuela over the years and yeah. commentators have said all along that they're probably the most free and fair elections that they've seen. Technologically, they're very good. They can't be, even though some fools like the British Foreign Minister and others repeat him as saying, oh, they're stuffed ballot boxes and so on. No, you can't do that in Venezuela. They have technology that's well in advance of most Western countries, unlike the... The ones in the U.S. where they were, where they couldn't read these these ballots in Florida in, in the Bush election, for example. But what has happened is that there's been a a tradition, really, of the extreme right wing in Venezuela refusing to participate in elections when they believe they're going to lose. So, for example, in the presidential elections last year, in 2017, that opposition called for 
the elections to be brought forward because they thought they were in a favourable position. And when the elections didn't happen in early in 2017, but in 2018, when the opposition got divided, um, of course this was some, the government in Venezuela playing to its advantage. When the, when the opposition got divided, they then they called an election in 2018, and then that extreme right-wing opposition said, no, 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 you know, this is the wrong timing for us, basically. And uh, they split, and one of the one of the opposition leaders, Falcon, ran and got almost two million votes, but uh, Maduro got 6.2 million votes. You know, so the participation rate was down because a large section of the opposition boycotted. But you know, I remember being in Venezuela 13 years ago, 2005. Nicolas Maduro was speaking in public. He was then the the head of the National Assembly. The opposition was boycotting that election there too of the National Assembly. They now, later on, they won the National Assembly. They have the, the majority in the National Assembly at the moment. But when it didn't suit them, they would pull out and just wait on, think that the next coup was going to deliver power to their hands. That's the sort of arrogance that they've had. So when, when it suits them, they participate. And when they think that uh, it's not going to suit them, they don't participate. It's very uncertain now, though, with Brazil on one side and Colombia on the other. Yes, and Colombia has always been the the military threat because the U.S. has military bases there. Mm. I think seven military bases there now in Colombia. The Colombian government has disavowed any any the suggestion, the question that they would allow those bases to be used for any action against Venezuela. And indeed, in the U.S., they're backpedalling on that idea of military intervention. The Venezuelans, in the meantime, haven't had their arms crossed. They've um, beefed up their military over the years because there's really there's been a constant threat against governments in Venezuela ever since the election of Chavez and equally since the coup of um, that Bush back in 2002, an actual coup where they kidnapped Chavez and almost killed him. So the military's been beefed up. They have um, a Russian alliance too, which is significant. It's a game that's being played out at the moment, but it's uncertain as to whether the uh, whether there's a significant will to sort of follow through with, with military intervention. But it's the people of Venezuela who are the meat in the sandwich. Absolutely, they suffer in this and they suffer because the war, as with all of the US wars, all of the imperial wars in recent years, let's say certainly in this century, involve economic wars and propaganda wars as well, or what the, the Pentagon says, that they are looking to achieve full spectrum dominance in all those spheres. So there's been an economic war going on for some time. Put to one side the question of the extent to which the Venezuelan government itself bears some responsibility, for example, for the problem of not controlling the currency and the problem of hyperinflation. But we know for sure, and the UN expert has recently reaffirmed it, the UN expert who spent six years in Venezuela, uh, Alfred Desaias, uh, an American lawyer, um, he said that the sanctions are killing that's a very significant part of the economic crisis, the sanctions the US has imposed on Venezuela. And now that includes the whole oil business. And of course, Venezuela, as part of its history, has been very dependent on it. On the one hand, it's got huge oil resources. On the other hand, having huge oil resources cripples the country. Really, Venezuela didn't historically develop its agriculture and industrial production as it could. But now that its oil exports are hit and there's great uncertainty about the... Um, exports to the US, um, then that introduces another pressure into the, into the economic picture. And of course Venezuela is not the only country where oil can be a curse. 
No, every country that's had oil really, I mean, Venezuela hasn't escaped this. Every country that has oil really, all of the focus of their attention turns to that cursed resource. Uh, it's not going to last forever, although Venezuela's got the biggest proven reserves in the world, apparently. In a lot of cases, like the Timor, for example, they have a lot of money, they throw it away, they don't manage it very well, there's corruption and so on. The difference in Venezuela was Chavez was at least reinvesting. They talk about ploughing, you know, ploughing the field, ploughing the oil back into the country, particularly through investing it in people, through education and health and so on in those areas. That's the most useful thing, I think, that can be done with uh, a resource like that because in the long run, it's not going to help. There are no, not even one good example of an oil-rich country that has had tremendous human development, for example. If you look at some of the best cases of human development, they're countries that don't, uh, they're not particularly rich in resources, but they invest in their people. Well, at least Chavez tried to turn that around, and Maduro is trying to turn that around too. Let, let's remember Maduro has presided over great continuity with the Chavez um, period, including, for example, they just uh, a few weeks ago managed to hand over the 2.5 million homes, or they reached 2.5 million of homes that were constructed and handed over to poor people. You know, dealing with a massive housing crisis that had been there for decades in Venezuela. So there are real benefits, um, despite the economic crisis, of the, um, the social programs, including in food security, in education, in housing, for example. I heard it grabs this morning on the radio about Trump talking about Venezuela and socialism, and socialism is a whole problem, you know, the, the dreadful socialist government, and but there's no mention of the fact that most of the economy is still in the hands of private enterprise. Yes, it is. Um, Chavez did have a, a program of nationalisation, but it was very slow, almost painfully slow, I think. After more than 12 years, they had nationalised about 60% of the oil and about 40% of the banking, but still, yeah, there, was, there wasn't really um, huge inroads into most private business there. So that's one of the the dilemmas of the whole Venezuelan experiment, you might say, that they say in Venezuela that the old system is dying but the new one hasn't been born yet. And you have this enormous conflict between the private and the public sectors, for example. For example, in health, there's still a huge private doctor sector and they are almost at open war with the public health system, the new hospitals and so on like that. You know, and they, uh, That has gone for a very long time. So when it comes to Food, for example, and the hoarding of food, you know, aggravated by the uncertainty of prices and the what's been going with the, the currency. The currency has been under attack, of course, but still, in a very long period of time, the government hasn't managed to get under control a stable currency. A stable currency would really do quite a lot for and, and, and place less reliance on the social programs, for example, to deliver food security. They do have good food security programs. It's not true that everyone's eating out of garbage bins. But there is a problem there because the currency hasn't been stable and so the government has to keep providing food to schools, to poor neighbourhoods and so on because the, you know, the incomes are not keeping up with the inflation. But I'm quite sure there are plenty of other countries around the world who have an unstable economy and they're not threatened with, with coup. Yeah, oh, and all these things come together. They all play together. That, that uncertainty does, as you say, it puts a, the people as the meat in the sandwich. They're the ones that are going to suffer. Everyone recognises this. Even in the US, uh, there's been this long debate in the US about 
sanctions as a, a tool of, of U.S. foreign policy. The U.S. and the EU, by the way, too, the, the European Union, have sanctions against about 25, 25 to 30 countries. And they know the impacts on people more than governments. You know, the, they claim they're, uh, of course, illegitimately trying to influence the governments of other countries, but in the process they're directly hurting other people. And now we have a reiteration of the, the statement that this UN expert, uh, Zayas, made a few months ago that sanctions kill, that a significant part of the economic problems in Venezuela is precisely the UN sanctions. Now, Trump will turn around and say, well, this is the result of socialism. He could say the same about Iran or Syria or, or, or Cuba or many other, all of the countries that are under sanctions. They are directly hurting those people in an effort to assist their illegitimate political aim of trying to overthrow the guns of those countries. I'd imagine there's a process underway to undermine the military in Venezuela. Well, they tried, and there was a, uh, a brief um, uprising recently. I think uh, about two dozen soldiers were arrested trying to do some sort of stunt. But the difference in Venezuela now is um, different to, say, Chile in 1973, is that in Chile the Allende government didn't have time to consolidate its influence in the institutions of the state whereas in Venezuela now it's 20 years of uh, Chavista governments, and they have consolidated that. I, I noted the difference when I went back for the wake after Hugo Chavez died that the military has retaken on a lot of the Bolivarian spirit. That is to say they're defending the constitution, the Bolivarian constitution, which is one of the first things that Chavez did, get people to vote a new constitution to defend all of these new social programs and a new approach to economic development and social development, for example. They, they have taken on, the institutions have changed. It's not like the old days in the 90s where the Venezuelan military was trained by the School of the Americas and the US were training the, the local torturers and the local military leaders who were more loyal to the US than they were to the local government. That, that's gone on with all Latin American countries, but Venezuela in many respects has broken that cycle. And the role now for countries like, like China and Russia? So China is, of course, a major investor throughout the whole continent, throughout the whole of uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, a very important partner for a lot of the countries that have been under threat, Cuba and Venezuela in particular. And so the Chinese, of course, they play it in a more cautious way because they also are codependent economically with the U.S. The U.S. is still the biggest consumer market that they're selling their things into, and uh, precisely for that reason, precisely because of their success, um, Trump has initiated this trade war with China. Uh, Russia is dealing with things in a more politicised way. That is to say, they're not just thinking from a business point of view. They they do strategically defend some of their allies when they're under threat. We've been in Syria, and um, it remains to be seen what they would do in Venezuela. But they have a, a at least a high-profile, iconic prince there with some of their uh, air power being based there. And the US is not happy with that, but that's... That's geopolitics these days. The U.S. is such a arrogant, open, and threatening imperial power these days that it's really inviting new alliances to be formed. You know, for example, what they're doing with Iran at the moment, it's really encouraging the process of integration of countries like Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon uh, because the the U.S. and Israel are so desperate to divide those countries. And uh, the same thing is happening in Latin America, of course. But Latin America is a little bit ahead because at least it has a history 
of regional integration. Now there's several big right-wing governments in Brazil, in Colombia, in Argentina, in Chile, uh, well, in, in, certainly in Colombia and, um, and Brazil, large and, and extremely right-wing, which has sort of broken that um, or weakened that uh, regional integration. They haven't left the, the regional organisations, UNASUR and SELAC, for example, but at least the consciousness of the people and the states themselves are thinking more in terms of unified continental action and escaping somewhat from the grasp of, of the US. The role of Mexico? So Mexico has uh, turned around now where, where Brazil was once sort of centre-left and now it's extreme right. The government in Mexico is a, a centre-left government again and the, the president there is supporting Venezuela effectively. The president is part of the soft left in, in, uh, in Latin America these days. So there's swings and roundabouts in Latin American politics. And, uh, of course, historically, Mexico has played a very important role in Latin America. It was the one country that didn't go against Cuba, for example, back in the 60s when the U.S. had Cuba isolated. Cuba's no longer isolated, and Mexico was always important in that, and it's playing an important role now in, in mediating the, uh, this dispute. Now, there are some initiatives, I believe, from including Bolivia, to try and get involved in the dialogue with the opposition there, because the opposition in Venezuela, remember, they've had a lot of attempts at coups in the last 20 years, and they've ended very badly in many respects, and some of their leaders have gone into exile. Some have been jailed because they've incited murder. There have been killings that opposition leaders have been linked to, and they, they've got away with a lot because there is such a degree of illegality that's, that's really been running through Venezuelan politics and um, I mean the, the violence and, and the, vi the political violence is from the extreme right in Venezuela is extreme and to some extent <clears throat> because of the international pressures it's probably po tolerated to an extent but the Venezuelan government really has some limits as to how far they can tolerate that so there are some but you know it's distorted um, the politics of the country and there's still you know, the, the political violence of course, links into a culture of crime and violence, unfortunately, which they haven't really been able to overcome completely in Venezuela. They built the cities in Venezuela, particularly Caracas. This type of polarisation, it's true, it is, there is a, it is a polarised society in many respects. Um, there are extreme class differences and the politicisation of those class differences makes it a very ugly picture in many ways. Finally, Tim, what should we, what should we looking at, keeping our eye on in the next week? So, looking at some of the the regional initiatives, it seems like um, some of the left governments in Latin America are going to play a role. This is the focuses our attention on the importance of the the remnants of what what is still there of Latin American unity. That uh, in the past there've been conflicts in Venezuela, which the which the regional partners and UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, have resolved in the past. Now the US under Trump is making a very bold move. It's not going to turn out very well for this young man, young parliamentarian who they've appointed from the outside as a, as, as a president. And people are laughing about it. They've probably mobilised a lot of support within Venezuela back towards the government. But the main, the main problem the government has had for the last two or three years really has been trying to stabilise the currency. They're now trying to do this through a virtual currency, through a petro linked to oil sales. So the economic relationships between the U.S. and Venezuela are important. Whether the government can get a handle on the, the, the currency and the stability of prices there, 
that's extremely important because, of course, that's been driving the discontent and the, and the right opposition has been uh, taking advantage of that. So there are social conditions in the country which need to stabilise for the political situation to die down a little bit. But, of course, the external pressure doesn't help. It might be that people are exaggerating the importance of the external pressure. The US is disavowing a, an attempt to militarily intervene, but they have successfully roped in um, many of the European powers, the former colonial powers, in this stupid game of, of recognising someone who no one voted for in, in Venezuela as a president. And uh, I really don't know why the West countries, including Australia, go along with, with this farce. It's, going to, it's not going to last very long. It's going to end badly. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. And many thanks to Dr. Tim Anderson. Coming up to 25 minutes past five, in a few moments we'll be hearing from Brian Terrell and um, history of Guantanamo Bay and the efforts being made over many years to try and close that wretched place down. I am sailing, I am sailing on the seas to water. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR support. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Sander in St Kilder. Why don't you come on down, do the Google thing, check out echocenter.com and find out how you can help us help you look after the planet. And by the way, don't forget to support 3CR. There have been rallies, sit-ins, marches, speak-ins, court challenges going back to 2005, all aimed at the closure of the concentration camp in Cuba operated by the US, Guantanamo Bay, where Muslim men, innocent of any charge, have been held some since 2002, the beginning of the War of Terror against Muslims, which has lasted 17 years. A group was formed in 2005 named Witness Against Torture and they've been relentless in their quest to have the camp closed. One of those is Brian Terrell and I spoke with him late last week. Brian, can I take you back to the very early days of this century, the attacks on the US buildings on 9-11? What were your feelings and fears following those events? It was a very fearful day, and I have lived in New York City for four years back in the 1970s. had many friends, and as it turned out, I, I do know people who were very badly injured, and uh, good friends, and then other people less well who, who were killed. It was a horrible event and hearing from friends in New York it reverberated I think though the events of October 4th of that same year it was just as devastating for me because that was the day that the United States and its coalition began bombing Kabul Afghanistan another city that I've gotten to know quite well since then within a few days more people died in Kabul than died in New York and they were arguably not a single one of those people knew what had happened in New York just several weeks earlier, much less anyone who bore any kind of criminal responsibility. Yeah, the vote that led up to that attack was one that was uniquely unanimous uh, in a day of, of fracture. 
Congress and the Senate that the two sides reached across the aisle and shook hands, and only one congresswoman, Barbara Lee, voted against the authorization use of force, supposedly to punish the people who perpetrated what happened in New York on 9-11. Barbara Lee said that she was afraid that we would become the evil that we deplore if we responded militarily to that crime, and I believe that she was right. And we've used that authorization of force. You know, we have soldiers, we have military operations from 70 countries, and this war doesn't seem to end, and it, it seems to be perpetuating itself, where under that authorization, uh, Libya was destroyed, and uh, we've had soldiers in Niger, and in uh, the, the invasion and occupation of you know, the destroyed Iraq, and the destruction of Syria. None of this is making us any safer. And out of that, too, just it was, you know, some months later, it was in January of, of 2002, we heard about the uh, first prisoner arriving in Guantanamo. You know, what a strange thing about uh, people being uh, picked up in the Hindu Kush mountains of Afghanistan and transported around the, around the world to the tropics of the Caribbean and, you know, Guantanamo, Cuba, of all places. Very, very bizarre and very disturbing, and we are living with the with the consequences of, of those decisions being made then today. What was known about that camp back then and what its history was? It's, it's really kind of an anomaly. This, this you know, I don't have the history right, right in front of me, but in the Spanish-American War in the late 19th century, the United States beat Spain and uh, had the concession, from not from Cuba, but from Spain, got uh, a lease on... Guantanamo Bay. It's been used for various military purposes since then. It's been used uh, before detaining these prisoners that were used to detain immigrants who were trying to flee the uh, earthquakes and the economic devastation going on in Haiti were, were taken there. But it makes a legal gray area because this is not the United States. It, it is Cuba. It's part of sovereign Cuba, but the United States has a lease to rent it, uh, and Cuban law should prevail there, but the Cubans are not interested in, they want us out, but they're not interested in policing our uh, military base. And so the people who have been brought there are seem to have no rights at all. They're not in the United States. They're not prisoners of war who would have the Geneva Convention protections, and they're not criminal suspects, uh, so they can't be tried in a normal court of laws as criminals. So there are people who are in a hole, in a legal hole. Now, most of the people, there are only uh, 40 people left out of more than 700 that have, that have gone through. Of those that are there, only a small number have, ever, have actually been associated with any acts of violence against the United States. I think this is as, as today the United States is using drones to kill suspects of uh, being involved in terrorism against the United States to see that the, the small, the tiny percentage of people when they're arresting people, when, they, when our armed forces were arresting people on the ground and taking them, taking them to Guantanamo, the number that were detained at Guantanamo that were actually associated with any acts of terrorism is in any kind of way, even in the... Uh, very unfair acts, uh, military tribunals that they've been subjected to has been very, very small. And among the 40 who are there, there are five who've been cleared for release. 
and another number, another larger number of men who have not been cleared for release, but the reason they have not been cleared is not because they have committed any crime or any act of aggression against the United States or anyone else. These are men who the United States admits have not been involved in any kind of acts of terrorism and that they know that. That's been ascertained through these processes. But they have been radicalized while they were in prison. They were not a danger to the United States now, but they will be detained forever, the plan is, because now, after, for many of them, as long as 17 years, after being taken with their families and subjected to torture, held for all those years, and now, if they're let go, they could be dangerous. It's a horrible, horrible term. Uh, and it's, you know, these are people who, who deserve they and their families deserve reparations and healing and help and not continued incarceration. So it continues to be a blot on, on our country and on the rest of the world for not reacting to it and pressuring the United States. And now we have Donald Trump. Fortunately, in this case, he bragged that he's keeping all of his promises, and this is a promise I'm glad that he has not kept because he, as a candidate, he promised that he would start that not only would no one be released from Guantanamo, but that he would be repopulating it, that he would be filling it up with bad guys. Fortunately, we have not seen that, and I don't really trust the uh, instincts of Donald Trump to decide who's going to be the bad guy and who's not, any more than certainly uh, much less than I trusted uh, President Obama to make that determination, which is not very much at all. Is there another society that you know of that has treated its prisoners or whatever in the same way that America does by taking them outside the law? I, I'm really not aware. I, I think this is this is a unique thing, and the, the President Bush's lawyers were very proud of themselves that they, they came up with this. There are uh, other societies who have no pretense at uh, being societies based on law who... who are also cruel to, to, to their prisoners. And there's, there's, I think both societies, uh, both states have dark times in their history, but this is, this, this is kind of unique. And one of the things that it, that it does, especially with the United States being holding itself up, and, and unfortunately seen that way too by, by many people in the world, as being the uh, standard of, of morality and legality, this has had effects around the world. One thing in particular we found out about two years ago, the Amnesty International and some other groups reported that in Yemen the United Arab Emirates are running some um, 18 black site prisons for uh, Yemeni rebels, uh, people they suspect to be Yemeni rebels who've been been arrested. And again, without any regard to, to uh, Geneva Conventions or Universal Declaration of Human Rights, any of the, the laws that the United States and uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, all supposedly ascribe to, that reports of torture and summary execution are coming out, and it's it just is uh, much more difficult for the international community to call the UAE on these prisons with the example that the United States has set. You know, it sets, it sets a bar. It's uh, the green light to abuses and to 
you know, things that the, that the world community has on paper to its curations and its covenants and pacts have said shouldn't happen anymore, but, but, but they are, and the United States is leading in this. How difficult has it been to find out over those years what has been done to those men and the conditions that they've been forced to live in? You know, there are groups like the Center for Constitutional Rights and Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, and there are individual lawyers who have done a lot. There's also a, and I don't remember what year it was, but a uh, Muslim chaplain named James Yi, who, who was in the United States military, a chaplain to Guantanamo, who um, went to prison because he gave the names of some of the detainees to their families which seems like a very pastoral thing that somebody was responsible for the spiritual being of the prisoners on Guantanamo should do. is like this is what prison chaplains do, is communicate with families of prisoners. And, and he went to prison for doing this. And for a long time, the, uh, the whole right of habeas corpus, uh, whether their names were even going to be spoken in court, in, a, in any U.S. court, uh, was not allowed. So it was a lot of hard work that we're able to, to find out who's there by um, a lot of good people on a lot of levels, and then to keep track of where they went. Uh, most of the people who have been released over the years have been released to third countries, not even able to go home. Many of them went to uh, prisons in third countries or in their home country. One thing that's disturbing about the... Trump administration is that the Department of Defense did have an office that was tracking the former detainees and finding out where they were, and some of that was public information, but those offices have been closed, which is a concern, even if you believe that that these men present a security concern, that we should know where they are, but more than that, these are people that I I believe the United States uh, owes a great debt to. The group that you're involved with is Witness Against Torture, and that was founded in 2005 when 25 Americans went to Guantanamo Bay and attempted to visit the detention facility. What happened at that time? Very sorry, I wasn't a part of that group that went, but many, many good friends were a part of that, and that was inspired by President George W. Bush, who, when allegations were being made about mistreatment of the prisoners there, he denied it categorically, and he said, if anybody's concerned about the prisoners of Guantanamo and think there's torture going on, well, they're welcome to go down there and see. (laughs) But uh, uh, that was, uh, as President George W. Bush was tended toward hyperbole, and that certainly was. Yes, 25 friends flew to Havana and then walked, I believe it was a couple hundred miles, across Cuba and went to the uh, fences around the military reservation, and they said, well, we have an invitation from the President of the United States, which invitation was not honored, but they got within distance of being able to, uh, to see the camp anyway that inspired other peace activists in the United States and uh, it uh, began uh, a couple of years later, 2007, we began gathering every year around January 11th, which is the date, it was January 11th in 2002, that the first detainees arrived 
in Cuba. So we we have been gathering for yeah as long as ten or twelve days. Gatherings have taken form of fast of most of us subsist on liquids only during that during our time. And then each day we meet together and educate ourselves and often every year I believe we've had um been briefed by lawyers for some of these detainees about what the legal situation is and we've gone to the halls of Congress and we've gone to the White House, orange jumpsuits and black hoods representing the prisoners. We've inserted ourselves in the public spaces and uh most years that's included arrests. Well, we've had uh we had uh one year, we, we was 2010, there were more than 80, 80 of us who were arrested in the uh, uh, rotunda of in the public space of the Supreme Court building. We were held for two days in the city jail system, um, and until we were in front of a judge, we refused to give our own names and not pretending to be somebody else, but... Being there, presenting, you know, being there, um, remembering somebody, we each gave a name of a one of the detainees rather than seek uh, the quick release that, that that we could have had. So when we've been gone to the White House, to the Capitol, to the Museum of American History, to the National Portrait Gallery, uh, various places where we we bring the images that American people and our politicians don't want to see and have put on, it really is high theater. We, we do street theater and uh, song and poetry. Just a, it's a time of uh, very, very intense activity and reflection. This is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. I'm Jen Bartlett and I'm speaking with Brian Terrell from the group Witness Against Torture. Towards the end of the interview, I asked Brian about the situation in the US regarding the wall and the government shutdown. This was prior to the announcement by Trump that the shutdown would end at least for three weeks. Now to part two. What happened to Obama's executive order to close it down? That didn't last very long. It was shot down by um, Republican Congress people who, in fact, the, the, the first people who were going to be released under Obama, where um, there are in China a community of, in the political realm of China, the people who are the Uyghurs, or they call themselves sometimes Eastern Turks. There are Turkish people who are Muslim who are wanting their independence from China. And uh, there were many of them in Guantanamo because they were in arrested in Afghanistan where they were going through military training, but their military training was to go to China with it, and they were actually being supported by the United States and the, you know, through the CIA. So anyway, these Uyghurs were going to be released because they were not involved in 9-11. There, there were no question that it was a uh, all mistaken identity that they were picked up to begin with. They were going to be resettled in Washington, D.C., where there is a small community of immigrants from, from there who were willing to take them in and sponsor them. And when some Republican members of Congress found out the way it was put was that, the, that Obama was going to uh, bring uh, terrorists and put them in Washington, D.C. They passed 
laws forbidding anyone from Guantanamo ever to come to the United States. And uh, there had been plans of bringing some of those men to the United States anyway, if most of them to stand trial in United States criminal courts, if they could be proven that they were, because they're not a member of an army, and if they were, if it could be proven that they were accomplices to the events of 9-11 in New York, they would be criminals and should we go through, go through the trials and the United States prison. But that was short-circuited. Obama's idea was to move, have everyone either be released or being brought to the United States for trial, and if found guilty, be, be held in U.S. prisons as ordinary U.S. prisoners, uh, which is bad enough. But uh, there's a lot of talk about what he could have done. His executive order was politically overwritten, but... I don't think that necessarily had to happen. I think he just didn't want to use, expend his, uh, uh, he could have fought that. He could have vetoed those laws that, that had been passed. And he did not want to expend his uh, political capital on these people who have such a very small support in the United States. And I think that's part of the work of Witness Against Torture in Washington and those of us in our communities at home around the country, we want to raise up the humanity. One of our slogans is, there's a man under that hood. You know, uh, we've presented their stories and their poetry and the, 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 the paintings that some of the prisoners have produced to, you know, make them more human and, and to tell the stories of their families. Because uh, that happened, I think Americans have so many times been given you know, the specter of 9-11 and this horrible crime that was committed against pushed in our face for so many years and just non-reflexively being used to justify our country doing heinous things both in Guantanamo and in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, in Niger, in Somalia, this can go on and on. Have any of the guards ever come forward to explain what it was like to be in Guantanamo Bay? Yeah, some of the guards have, and I, I, I uh, wish I had their stories at, on hand right away, um, but we've heard, and there, there have been uh, guards who have uh, reached out to prisoners who've been released in other places. Yeah, some of the detainees who have left and, and been able to write about their stories. A man named Mozambique, who's in uh, living in the United Kingdom now, he's a UK citizen, wrote a book, Enemy Combatant, in which he writes with very much compassion to the, about the um, young men and women, soldiers from working class and poor urban and rural families around the United States who have no idea what the politics are or anything who are the guards there and who affect are imprisoned in Guantanamo in a, in a way much like the uh, much like the detainees and it's um, you know, it's a tremendous thing uh, you know, courage for who've undergone torture to look at their captors and say recognize how they're victims of this war, too, victims of the poverty that this war genders in our country, you know, morally and economically. Yeah, that, that uh, 
shoving Guantanamo is, 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 is essential, first of all, for the victims, for those who are there. They need to be restored to their families, and they need to be given reparations, given therapy, being helped to heal from what, what had been done to them. And also the United States needs to do it for our place in the world, um, you know, for our very souls. On the other hand, some of the people who are in the very top of the chain, of the military command, and and in the uh, Defense Department, different government ministries that oversee this, are guilty of tremendous cruelty and, and actions that, that, that are criminal in United States law and international law, and, and they need to be held accountable. What will it take to get that camp closed? Again, Obama could have done it. Trump certainly could, but it's very unlikely, if anything, if Trump has its way, it will be filled up again and made even bigger. So I think what it's going to take is we can't depend on our politicians, as we saw with Obama in our democratic system, we can't expect great courage from the people we elect, because in order to get elected, they have to appeal to the to the base and to who you know, to the numbers of people, and as long as most of the American people don't care and or else are letting their uh, their fears dictate uh, their politics, uh, none of this is going to get fixed. So we have to build the culture. It has, I believe it really has to come from the bottom up. In the words of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who is president of the United States until 1960, about the time he retired, he said that uh, the government won't give us peace. Someday the people will want it bad enough, the government will have to get out of the way and give it. And I think that this is um, not to discount the electoral process totally, but it will, it, it will move when it's pushed and not, and not before. And so our small efforts, speaking, acting, fasting, and you know, going to jail ourselves, Hopefully, in the long run, which we don't have much time for that either, hopefully it will make some kind of change that will cause the American people to say that uh, we don't want unending war, Uh, this war that began more than 17 years ago has to stop, and we have to heal ourselves and heal the people that we've hurt and change our national priorities. There's, uh, we're in danger of climate change, the threat of nuclear war, and, and simply don't have time right now for all of this. The change that we've been saying that we needed for a long time is needed immediately. It's imminent, and <laughs> so we need to do what we can to try to bring that about. Ryan, could you spend a couple of minutes to just talk about the current climate in the United States with Trump and his wall, the migrants in limbo, people not being paid, trying to eke out an existence without pay. What is it like yes. at the moment? Well, I'll tell you one thing that was interesting. In, we were in Washington again this year from January 6th to the 12th, and we were several times at the White House. And a year ago, I wrote an article after Witness Against Torture protests where I was arrested by the Secret Service, which 
guards the White House and the, the president held overnight on a on a false warrant and all kinds of things. How much the area around the White House over the years, which has been a place of for freedom of speech, where people have women ran, got the right to vote and Civil Rights Act and even veterans marching for their own benefits after World War One. The White House has been a place of people to gather and protest and to assemble to address grievances with the government, but that's been cut down and cut down, and the Secret Service has been especially stringent and strict about the rules and arresting people and um, closing down the, the road in front of the White House and closing down Lafayette Park at any sign of a demonstration, very tight-fisted. This time, the... Secret Service was very, very polite <laughs> and very uh, open and very uh, generous with, with the space that they allowed us to have in protesting, and we didn't get any of the uh, meanness that, that, they, that they'd shown the year before. It was only uh, later that, I, that it came to my mind because I was fasting, so my brain wasn't working real fast, but they weren't being paid. <laughs> they were there. They had to be there, but they weren't being paid. And that was one way that we saw it, in Washington especially, where there's so many federal employees. Already, two weeks ago, there were restaurants being closed down because the people who would to eat, eat there were, were not working, or working without pay, so not going out to eat. But the wall is based on, on completely false premises. People come across that border are legally or illegally are no more likely to commit crime. They're less likely to commit crimes than citizens of the United States. Drugs that have been interdicted have been, you know, they mostly come through airports and legal ports of entry. It doesn't happen that people are, are carrying drugs across the desert to the United States. What's more, it's just like the immigration situation that's going on in Europe and going on there in Australia, is that these are immigrants who are coming. These refugees are not adventurers. They're for the most part. They're very desperate people, and they're coming from places that the policies of the United States and the United Kingdom, NATO, have all participated in to make life in their countries unfeasible, very dangerous with economic policies and wars. One of the largest numbers of immigrants coming to the United States from the southern border come through Mexico from Honduras, where the last time the United States had a coup there, and it was never, not the first one, was back in 2009 when NAFTA, the North America Trade Agreement that was just supplanted, uh, first came in some 10 years ago. Since then, the you know, immediately wages in Mexico went down by 40%. You know, because of manipulation by the United States and its banks and its corporations, were wrecking things in those places for military and economic policies. And then the, the real thing is, is this wall is not meant to keep people out, but to make people, the more desperate immigrant population is here and the more afraid that it is and the more marginalized that it is, the cheaper they're going to work, longer hours they're going to work, and the, and the, condi and the bad conditions they're going to put up with. So I don't think there's, there's any real, the people, even Trump calling for, you know, build the wall, build the wall. People don't really want to stop the the flow of immigrants. It's just a matter of, more a matter of harassing people and making their lives harder. Again, like with the men in Guantanamo, these people that we fear are actually people that 
the United States owes a debt to. We should have an open border, and we should be, when people come to the border, uh, should be quickly processed and be given homes and medical care and allowed into our educational institutions. But even more than that, we need to make reparations in their home countries so that they can go home. We don't need to be exploiting them for their cheap labor. Our own economy and our own labor situation here would be much better if we didn't have this, uh, um, you know, the flow of immigrants, flow of poor, desperate people coming across our border. But we need something, you know, uh, completely different from what we've been doing. Thank you, Brian, for spending time with me. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure. And that is Brian Terrell from the group Witness Against Torture. That's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4. In a couple of minutes' time, Done by Law will be here. But let's go out with Paul Kelly. Bye now.